Is it just me or does that look like a pure Michigan ad to anybody else? I'm just, just throwing it out there. Happy Father's Day, everybody, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. And once again, to you tuning in from Hoffmaster through the miracle of the internet, welcome to you as well. Honored to have you along for the ride. And I'm super excited today because we get to launch a brand new series called Because You're Loved. That's all about an invitation that you may never have known that you received. It's an invitation to rethink your entire approach to religion because of the love that God has demonstrated for you when Jesus died on the cross for you. It's, it's the same invitation, by the way, that an early Jesus follower named John wrote of when he penned the words that have become the most famous verses in the entire Bible. I, you, you've heard this likely, but it goes like this. John wrote, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then he said this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And it's really hard to overstate the significance of what John wrote here. I mean, I mean, in these verses, he affirmed that the God who created the heavens and the earth, like the one true God, is not fundamentally angry with you. Like he's not up in heaven, scanning, looking for people, waiting for them to mess up so he can send a lightning bolt in their direction. He's not in the business of abandoning people who've gone too far and who've done too much and who feel completely unlovable. Instead, John wrote that because of Jesus, we can know that God loves us. Like he loves everyone everywhere and he loves the whole world and he desires to be reconciled to every single person who lives on it because he is for us and he desires us to thrive even in the midst of this life here and now. I'm telling you, that understanding, when it went out in the ancient world, it eventually disrupted pretty much everything that people had ever thought about religion. And for the next few weeks, we're going to explore how. You'll soon see that when it comes to your approach to religion, everything can change because you're loved. Okay, so that said, with our time together today, uh, we get to talk about the first thing that you may need to rethink in light of Jesus and his love for you. And what we get to talk about today is sin. And I made the font really big. You like that? Yeah. It's Sin Day at Keystone. And I know what a whole bunch of you are thinking, especially if you grew up in church like me. Okay? Something like this. <clears throat> um, is this one of those talks uh, that after I listen to it, I feel horrible about myself? Uh, because no offense, but if I wanted to have that experience this morning, I should have gone golfing. <laughs> at least I'd get a tan while I was feeling bad about myself, right? Well, and if that's what you just thought or some version of that, I have really really good news for you because you've likely never been introduced to what we're going to talk about today. Uh, today, I want to talk to you about what it looks like to rethink sin in light of God's love for you and in light of God's love for everyone else. And, and to get us going in that direction, I need to ask you a really important question, and it goes like this. What makes something a sin? In other words, like, how can we know when something is outside of God's design? How do we know the rules that God wants us to follow as we live our lives? You know, is it simply that something shows up in the Bible as a, you know, do, don't do this or thou shalt not? Or is there something more that we need to consider? And, and fortunately for us, Jesus actually answered this question during his time on earth. But unfortunately for us, uh, well, 
pastors like me have often unintentionally obscured Jesus' answer. And here's why I say that. All too often in our teaching, pastors have equalized rather than prioritized the rules that are found in the Bible. And so consequently, many people have come to believe that all of the rules in the Bible are all equally applicable to them. But here's the thing, and this may surprise you, again, if you grew up in church, according to Jesus, that's not how it works. In fact, during his time on earth, Jesus regularly prioritized some of the biblical rules found in the Old Testament that God intended for ancient Israel over other rules. And then on the night he was betrayed by one of his closest friends, Jesus gave his followers a single rule that was to serve as the defining ethic in their lives moving forward, a single rule that, again, helps us understand whether or not something is a sin. So let me show you what I mean. Um, In his account of the life of Jesus, a man named Matthew recorded a conversation that occurred one day between Jesus and someone he identified as an expert in the Old Testament law. And the conversation began when this expert approached Jesus and asked Jesus a question. The question went like this. Teacher, so that's a term of respect, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And again, uh, Jesus was interacting with a Jewish man, a Jewish expert, and so he was referring to the Old Testament law. Which of the 613 rules recorded in the Old Testament is the most important? And in response, and this is fascinating if you think about it, Jesus didn't question the question. Like he didn't say, what do you mean which is the greatest commandment in the law? They're all equally inspired, and so they're all equally important. Like instead, in response, Jesus actually affirmed the validity of the expert's question by answering it, which means that in this conversation, Jesus identified the most important Old Testament command. He said it was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. This is revealed to the children of Israel in a book called Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, chapter 6. This is the most famous verse, arguably, in the Old Testament. But yeah, the first and greatest command, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And I think it's worth noting that in this conversation, the expert in the law would have agreed with Jesus completely on this point. According to first century Jews, wholehearted love for God was without question the first and greatest commandment. No disagreement. And so as I imagine it, this expert would have sort of been nodding slowly in agreement with Jesus' response, at least until Jesus said, and. And the expert in the law would have thought, time out, and what? Like, I asked you for the most important one, you gave me the most important one. You answered my question, and oh, by the way, I agree with your answer. Well done there. Sorry, Jesus, there's no and. But here's the thing, Jesus had an and. And as it turns out, as he kept talking, he revealed another greatest commandment. Seriously. He said, and the second is like it. In other words, Jesus says, in order for me to properly answer your question about the greatest one, I need to give you two. And and fun fact I picked up when I was preparing this talk, the Greek word translated second here tips us off to this fact. It means second in sequence not second in importance. And so Jesus identified a second commandment that he said was like the first. And when he did that, he's essentially saying that the two commandments are linked in such a way that the only way to obey the one is to obey the other, which of course raises the question, like what was the second commandment that Jesus said was like the first? He described it this way. He said, love your neighbor 
as yourself. And then he said, and I'm telling you, the implications of this would have rendered this expert in the law completely speechless. Then he said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. In other words, every Old Testament law, as it turns out, was an application of what love required. And let that sink in for a moment. All those to-dos and to-don'ts contained in God's covenant with ancient Israel simply described what the love of other people required in their specific social and cultural situations. Moreover, this expert in the law would have understood something really powerful, that when Jesus linked these two commands, he was saying that the only way that you could truly love God was to love other people. In fact, according to Jesus, someone's love for God is demonstrated and authenticated by their love for other people. For other people, by by the way that they treat their family and their neighbors and their enemies and for the people that are easy for them to love and, and the people who are challenging for them to love. Like in the end, Jesus would say that someone's love of other people is the only way that you can truly tell whether they're loving God with all their heart in all their soul, and all their mind. So, so again, according to Jesus, the love of people and not the ability to follow a bunch of religious rules was to be the top priority in the life of someone who sought to love God. And, and so that was Jesus' you know, understanding, and that's what he taught. And, but because it was such a big deal to him, and because it went against the grain of pretty much everything that anyone had ever thought about religion in the ancient world— Jesus reiterated this point over and over again in his conversations with Jewish religious leaders. Uh, and one of my favorite examples of this uh, was recorded by an early Jesus follower named Mark. And so in Mark's account of the life of Jesus, uh, he gives us this story. He said, one Sabbath, and that's really important, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And I know we're like, okay, well, why do I care, right? That's not that big a deal, but... But in the first century in Israel, that simple activity would have invited tons of judgment from the Jewish religious establishment because according to first century Jewish religious code, it was illegal for people to help themselves to a snack while walking through someone else's field on the Sabbath. Anyway, Mark tells us, and this is great, the Pharisees said to him, look, Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Like your disciples, they're doing something that's out of bounds. They're sinning. But just just before we talk about what they said, I love the fact that the Pharisees were watching Jesus, don't you? Like everywhere Jesus goes, the Pharisees are watching him. And the Pharisees, of course, are these super intense religious leaders who had made it their full-time job to be good as defined by their understanding of the Old Testament law. They were going to be good, and they were sort of the God squad helping other people to be good. And like you read those accounts of Jesus' life, I'm telling you, you're going to see the Pharisees were always watching Jesus. They were like, they were like the embodiment of that creepy 80s song by the police. You know what I'm talking about? One of my kids years ago, he's like, oh, dad, it's creepy song again. I'm like, creepy song? He goes, yeah, every breath you take, every move you make, I'll be watching you. <laughs> it is kind of creepy, right? Yeah, and as it turns out, it is the uh, most played song in the history of radio. Just a fun fact. Anyway, the Pharisees were trailing Jesus because they found him fascinating and disturbing and dangerous because people liked Jesus a lot more than they liked the Jewish religious leaders. And and I suspect that these these group of Pharisees, they were trying to build like a list of grievances against Jesus so they could eventually, you know, haul him before some council and get him, you know, uh, 
committed or indicted or whatever. So when they noticed that Jesus' followers were breaking their religious rule, they asked Jesus why he was permitting them to do what they had determined was wrong. And to be fair, God had told the children of Israel not to work on the Sabbath, but it was the religious leaders who had determined that picking a single head of grain on the Sabbath qualified as work. So anyway, in response to the challenge, and I just love this, Jesus ignored the absurdity of their application of the Sabbath law. And he took this opportunity to make a much broader point. In fact, in this moment, he made a statement that had and has profound implications for how we understand the entire law of God, like both the Old and the New Testaments. And so here's what Jesus said. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, guys, you've got it backwards. He goes, think about this. God didn't create people so there would be someone to keep his rules Like in the beginning, right? Before the creation of heaven and earth, God wasn't up in heaven holding a list of rules and commands thinking, dude, these are so good, right? Really, I did myself. I need to create some people in order to follow them, right? That's not how it worked. And and I know that sounds ridiculous to us, but I'm telling you, that was how the first century Jewish religious leaders operated. I would argue that's how religion naturally operates. Like they had elevated the importance of following the rules over the importance of loving the people for whom the rules were designed to help. And as I was working on this this week, I found myself thinking, you know, I'm so glad that this sort of thing never happens today. You with me? Yeah. I'm just so thankful that followers of Jesus in 2023, you never prioritized their application of a religious rule over loving someone that the rule was originally intended to help. And in case you miss it, hashtag sarcasm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It happens all the time. Anyway, when you read those accounts of the life of Jesus carefully, you'll see that over and over and over and over again, Jesus affirmed that in religion as God intended it to operate, people are the priority always. Moreover, and this is worth writing down and thinking about later, whenever someone applies the law of God in a way that harms people, they aren't applying it correctly. Because again, the law was always intended to benefit people. And by the way, this is why Jesus got so worked up whenever religious leaders in his day would justify their mistreatment of people by pointing to the fact that they were upholding the law of God. I mean, it made his blood boil. And just for fun, um, I want to show you an example. Um, One day, a group of religious leaders approached Jesus, and they asked him a question that, shockingly, they didn't think was absurd. (laughs) But you will. Here's what they asked him. They said, teacher, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Right? Just asking. Like, is it lawful? Like, is it consistent with the Old Testament law? We want to honor God. We want to honor his rules. We don't want to sin. So is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? You know, does he need a good reason or like, well, pretty much any reason do? And obviously, this is a horrible question for a number of reasons. Would you agree? But but like to the point of our talk today, it's the sort of question that you ask when you're more concerned about a rule than a person. And, and that's why, if, and, and you know, I would argue too, if we're being honest, I was reflecting on my own journey quite a bit this week as I was working on this talk. I, I think that's something that a lot of us have probably done 
at some point in our lives. And, and here's what I mean. Um, if you grew up in church like me, you probably had a moment or two when you sort of approached your Sunday school teacher or your small group leader or your youth pastor or maybe even your, you know, your, your pastor, pastor guy, and, and you asked that pastor or that person some version of this question. Does the Bible say that blank is a sin? <laughs> and I know why you asked it, because I know why I asked it. I, I wanted to do blank, right? Yeah, yeah. You wanted, and you wanted to do blank, but before you did blank, you wanted to know if God would be mad at you if you did blank. So you asked, and, and you sought someone out who you figured probably knew a little bit more of the Bible than you did. Maybe they would know if this certain something would get you sideways with God. And see, the assumption behind your question is that in the Bible, God revealed all the sins. Like he told us every single one. And as long as we got those locked in and followed those with everything we could, then we were going to be fine, right? And the assumption behind that belief is that, well, then if the Bible doesn't condemn it, then God must condone it. Like if the Bible doesn't say it's wrong, then God must think it's right. And I know this sounds good, at least initially, but I'm telling you, this is not what Jesus taught. I mean, according to Jesus, what's good for people, like what demonstrates love to people, is good. And what's not is sin. And, and by the way, this is why Jesus had absolutely no patience for good people who weren't good to people. I think I'm going to repeat that one. That's why Jesus had absolutely no patience for good people who weren't good to people. People who publicly declared that they were aligned with God and they were following all the rules, but they just weren't kind and gracious to people. Because again, God loves people. In fact, one day Jesus looked at the goodest religious leaders. I know that's not a word. The goodest religious leaders he could find, right? And he looks him right in the eye and he says something and it's so great. And he, this is worth a whole series. But anyway, he says this, woe to you, teachers of the law. If Jesus is saying woe to you, you're off track, right? Woe, you got to read it like that too. Very important. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Again, those are the guys whose full-time job was to be good. They followed the rules. They obsessed. In fact, they did this. He says, you hypocrites. You're pretending. You're acting. And they're like, no, we're not. We're following the rules. He's like, yeah, you're following the rules. You give a tenth of your spices. How hard would that be to count spices, right? Mint and dill and cumin. He, I just imagine like a table with piles of spices and they got these little like eyeglass things and they're like, one for God, nine for me, right? Like that. And they're, he's like, and you're doing this because God told you that you needed to give a, you know, a tenth, but seriously. He says, but look at this. You have neglected the more important matters in the law. All the laws are not equal, they're all important, but they're not all equal. There's actually ones that are more important. He goes, well, what would those be? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus says, listen, and he goes on to say, you know, you shouldn't neglect the former, like you're, you're fine to do the tenth, the tenth thing, but he's like, you're missing the most important thing. The intent behind God's law is more important than the laws themselves. Because the laws of God flow from the heart of God, and the heart of God towards people is love. Why are you supposed to give a tenth of your spices? To help other people. 
Like, you're, but you're missing the most important thing. Loving people is more important than following a bunch of religious rules. Again, the religious rules are fine. They're important, but there's something that's more important. Okay, so I'm going to make an honest confession. Um, and this is going to shock no one who knows me, but I am a firstborn dispositionally compliant individual. Where are my people at? Right? Yeah, there's a few of us. We love religion. That's just how we're wired, right? But my, because that's how I'm wired, my early religious experience was all about following the rules. And it was the 1980s, so it was like, you got to get rid of your Madonna cassette tapes. Mm. It says that somewhere in Second Opinions 13 or something. I don't know, right? But that was it. Like, my brother actually says he bought the album um, Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses, a phenomenal album, 10 times. Because every time he would go to a youth retreat, they would talk about getting rid of the stuff in there, and he'd burn his cassette tape or CD. <laughs> and then he would backslide and buy it again. Woo! And today he owns one. I know he does. Anyway, and some of you who are, like, not 30 yet are like, Guns and who? Anyway, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So my early upbringing was a lot more about following a set of religious rules that were really more informed by culture than anything in the scriptures. Way more about the rules than about seeking things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. I mean, growing up in church, I kind of picked up the idea that if I kept the rules and avoided sin, then God would bless me. And if someone else didn't or even couldn't keep the rules, well, that was sort of on them, not my problem. And consequently, my faith initially was marked by the pursuit of things like discipline and fidelity and morality and honesty. And you're like, man, that sounds great. And it, it's, it's great, at least until you realize that it wasn't enough, because my approach to religion had organized itself in a way that doesn't really concern itself that much with how other people are treated. So it's like a very self-centered approach to faith. And, and that approach sort of worked for me, you're going to love this, until the day that I actually started reading the Bible, <laughs> right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I started paying attention to Jesus. And the more I paid attention to Jesus, the more I was like, dude, I'm a lot more like a Pharisee than I am like Jesus. And my approach has got to change. And, and those who knew me best would tell you that over the next few years, I didn't become liberal, I became compassionate, maybe just a little bit more compassionate, and maybe just a little more graceful and a little less judgmental. You know, dare I say I became a little more like Jesus, which is the idea, right? If you're a Christian, you're a Jesus follower, we're supposed to follow Jesus, so we would do what he did. And again, it's not that the religious rules are, are necessarily bad, but man, we can't use religious rules to hurt People. And eventually, um, you know, Sarah and I talked a lot about this in the early years of our marriage, and we just celebrated 19 years. Yeah, she, that's like a gold medal putting up with me that long. Woo! Yeah. But anyway, um, I, when we started having kids and we started talking about, like, how do we want to introduce our four boys to the way of Jesus? And I love this picture of them, right? Because it's like wide open, just like wonder. How do we introduce them? And, uh, we decided as best we could, and we have not done a perfect job by any stretch, but we just wanted to introduce them to the way of Jesus in a way that was more others-focused. Not that we tell them, you know, go ahead and sin. That's a terrible idea, right? Yeah. But just like, guys, this is what it means to be a, a Jesus follower in our world. And, and here's how I suspect that it's at least somewhat working. 
when one of my older boys, because they're the ones that really are paying attention, right? When they run into things like legalism and judgmentalism among religious people, the very things that marked my early faith, they're offended. And we're thrilled, <laughs> right? Because legalism and judgmentalism are not of God. In fact, they're some of the very things Jesus came to free people from because, again, he loves us. And, and so with that, I want to bring us back to the question that we asked at the start of this talk. Like, according to Jesus, you know, what, what makes something a sin? Like, what's, what's out of bounds or what should be out of bounds for followers of Jesus? And, and based on my now decades-long study of the way of Jesus, I would suggest two incredibly simple things. You don't have to write them down because it's so easy, right? It's not like a, ooh, very profound, got to think about it thing. No. Um, you know, uh, so the first one, it goes like this. If it's not good for someone, it's sin. Right? Easy to understand. If you want to follow Jesus, and if you want to avoid sin in your life, then don't treat anyone in a way that's not good for them. Because again, and I feel like I'm beating the drum here, but God loves them and wants the best for them. And so when you do something or I do something that harms another person, even if it's legal... And even if it isn't specifically promote, prohibited in the Bible, I think it's still sin. Because again, the heart is that if it's not good for someone, Jesus would say it's sin. Okay, here's, here's the other one. Um, if it's not good for you, it's sin. It's not just other people that God is concerned about. He's concerned about you. He loves you and he wants the best for you as well. And so whenever you do something that's not good for you, it's sin. If it's not good for your body, if it's not good for your future, if it's not good for your character, if it's not good for your reputation, really, really anything that has to do with you. Because again, he loves you because you're a people and God loves people. Okay, so now, but before I let you go, um, you know, the... the pastor lurking within me just has to ask you a final question. And um, it's an action point. It goes like this. Are you currently harming yourself or others? In, in other words, based on what I believe to be Jesus' definition of sin, are you sinning? And may, maybe it's a habit that's uh, slowly chipping away at your self-control Maybe it's a relationship that if the people who love you and who are depending on you found out about, it would harm their confidence in you. Maybe it's some sort of behavior that's eroding your self-respect. Like, if you're honest, you're not thrilled with the person that you see in the mirror looking back at you anymore. I mean, like, whatever the specifics, if that's the case for you, would you be willing just simply to acknowledge that reality to yourself this morning? Like, you don't have to stand and confess anything. Just like, just to yourself, say, no, that, that, that's too far. And then the second question is, would you be willing to accept Jesus' invitation to follow him and to begin to walk away from it? Maybe you need to pull a close friend aside and say, you know what, I, I, this is out of control in my life and I just need some accountability. Would you just check in with me and, and see how I'm doing with this thing? And, so not only do you maybe pray and, and give it over to God and ask for him to help you, but you seek out another, another human being who can remind you, by the way, that God still loves you, 
and that the blood of Jesus can c- covers that sin too. So this isn't about, you know, this relationship. This is, this is about the horizontal relationships. Again, it's, it's not that God's going to get you if you don't deal with this thing in your life, but, but you need to go after it because if you don't go after it, sin will hurt you. And, and in fact, it, it's already hurting you if you're honest. And it has the potential to hurt the people who love you the most. So, so Whatever that thing is for you, if something came to your mind as someone who loves Jesus and who loves you, I want to invite you to walk away from it. Like now, like don't wait because I'm telling you, your heavenly father loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And because of that incredible reality, he has invited you to rethink sin not so much as something that breaks his laws, but rather something that breaks his heart because it hurts his kids. All right, with that, um, we'll pick it up there next week, but I'd love to invite you to stand if you're here in the room, and I'll close our time together in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this community and for the way that so many seek to follow after the way of your son, not perfectly because that's not, the, that's not even possible, but just that we want to have that direction in our lives. And, and so thank you for loving us in spite of us. Thank you for inviting us to be a part of sharing your love with our world. And this morning we thank you for the blistering clarity of the teachings of your son. It's easy to hide in religion. It's not easy to hide in love. And, and so I pray uh, that not only would we, we be people who love, but people who take the time to really look inside to see if there's anything that we're doing that is hurting ourselves or other people. Give us the courage to walk away from that. And as we do in small ways and large, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is in the matchless name of your son, our Savior, King Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. Uh, By the way, before you leave, if, if any of you would like to pray with someone, we'll have some volunteers under the screen to the left. But go in peace.